Welcome to What We Lead, a study of four faith legacies. In this five-session Bible study, we're looking at the faith legacy of you. We'll dive into the portion of Jesus' ministry that is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a powerful passage that gives us a blueprint to live our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. As with all of our studies, we'd love to walk alongside you and we want you to know if you need prayer or just have questions, we'd be honored to connect with you. Please feel free to contact us at women at rpcstaff.org. Now get comfy, grab a pen and paper, and get ready to join our teacher, Chris Murphy, as she walks us through the faith legacy of you. Father, we come to you, um, and we thank you, first of all, for your son. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for all that he did for us, including leaving us this pattern, this template, this guide for prayer. Um, Father, I pray today that we all um, understand what prayer is in a, a slightly different way. Maybe, maybe it's become um, rote. Maybe it's become too um, repetitive in nature where we kind of don't feel it anymore. Lord, I pray that we all have this rebirth in our conversation with you. I pray that your words, um, they speak to our heart, they speak to our soul, and they tell us exactly what you want us to know about you and communicating with you through prayer. Thank you, Father, um, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, prayer. So we talked about all week, right? We are gonna talk today about the Lord's Prayer. So we're gonna be in Matthew 6, verses five through 15, but we're also gonna flip over to Luke. Um, Luke chapter 11, okay? Because that's also, and I talked a little bit about that, I think, in your, in your lesson, in your homework. But we're gonna talk about a couple of things there too um, when we talk about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, it's interesting. When you look up all the um, commentaries and the scholars and all the, all the smart guys and what they say, you know what they always say, which I think is so cool? They always say, well, it actually is the disciples' prayer, it's actually the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer necessarily, because it's Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And so it makes sense that we would call it the disciples' prayer. I love that. I love that idea of that. I, I asked a few people online. I got on Facebook because, you know, that's where all the, the truth is, right? All the good information comes from Facebook. And so I asked you guys, and I think you had this question in your homework too. I said, um, in, in just a short phrase or a short sentence, how would you define prayer? And it was kind of fun to see how people would roll in with their answers. And I think you're gonna enjoy it when you discuss it with your groups as well. Um, but the common words I kept seeing over and over were relationship, communication, connection, lifeline. I love that. Communion, right? It, it just made me think of, gosh, that prayer is such an important part of our faith legacy. But do we put enough emphasis on it? And do we see it for what it really is? Um, this week, you guys know my love for Time Hop. Do you not, if you don't know my love for Time Hop, let me just tell you a little bit about it. This is not a paid advertisement, should be. Um, Time Hop, the app, it, you connect it to your social media or your photographs and stuff. And so every day when you get, when you get um, up in the morning, I mean, before you meet with Jesus first and then Time Hop, right? And so some days I get up and I'm like, what was I doing? You know, what was I doing a year ago? What was I doing three years ago, five years ago? I open up Time Hop and I start flipping. And this week I opened up Time Hop, I started flipping through. And it came up on this photograph. Um, I brought the actual items here, but it was this photograph of this envelope that has all these metal pieces in it. And for most people, they'd be like, what in the heck is that? What does that even mean? And, and one of the big pieces that's about, it should be about this long is broken in half. And, and then there's about 17, 18 screws, something like that. 
the significance of this photograph that popped up in my time hop was um, that three years ago, my son had just had surgery to repair a titanium plate that was in his arm, put in his arm to fix him, and it broke. And, and if you know anything I've learned about medical things, titanium doesn't break. <laughs> and so it was just a weird time for us, you know? And so when that photo popped up, I remember thinking, why in the world would something that's supposed to be so strong snap in half? Well, when the surgeon talked to us and said, um, your son's plate is broken and we thought this would be in his arm forever. We thought this hardware would stay with him forever. And they said, his plate's broken in half. We're gonna have to pull it out. There's a reason, something's going on. Something's going on with the bone. We gotta figure it out. And so before we go into surgery, I asked the, the question that all of us are thinking, how does titanium break? And he said, well, Chris, titanium is never meant to be the bone. All it's meant to do is like be a scaffolding, to be like, think about it like the bone is concrete and, and, and the plate is rebar, you know? It's supposed to hold everything in place so the bone can heal and firm up. It's supposed to just kind of be this structure that just kind of holds it in place. Well, what was happening at the time, well, something was wrong with his bone. There was an infection, it was weak. And so the titanium, think of a paperclip. It was these little micro movements, little tiny movements that over time wore it out and it just popped. And I say all that because when I saw that picture pop up, I remember thinking, what could we have done? You know, what could we have done to try to save this plate, eventually save the bone? Well, the hard part about that is, this is nothing we could have done because the infection was there. But what we had to do then was treat the infection. And so then they had to put an external thing that ended up being a scaffolding as well. And all, the good news is he's healed and he's good. But I started thinking when that popped up, I thought, God, you know, is prayer supposed to be that in our lives? In my faith walk, is prayer supposed to be the rebarb? Is prayer supposed to be the scaffolding, the thing that holds my faith in place? And so what happens when that faith starts getting a little weak, it's usually because that prayer life is having these micro movements maybe, right? That they're breaking it in half. I, I felt that way for me. It was like, I felt like God just did that on purpose. Like he gave me this little God metaphor, you know, because for me, I needed to be reminded of that is that my prayer life is what holds my faith walk together. I don't know how you feel about your prayer life. Like, honestly, I, I, I'm not joking when I say that this lesson's my favorite and here's why. Because I feel like it's the weakest part of me. It's the part that is always just on the edge of breaking, you know? And so I love that Jesus addresses it, specifically to us, the disciples, the people who are the followers of Jesus who want to make more disciples and love him with all that we are. Well, I mentioned that we're gonna go, we're gonna look at Luke 11, but we're also gonna look at Matthew 6. The reason we're gonna talk about Luke 11, verse one specifically, is because um, I mentioned this, I think, last session. We believe that this was probably the same instance. This prayer was probably the same time. This, this Luke 11 and also the Matthew 6, it might've been the same time. It might've been, it might not have been. It might've been Jesus repeating this again to his disciples because how many times do we need to hear things over and over, right? For it to get through. Well, either way, I thought it was important for us to see how Luke makes sure we understand how it started. 
So look with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 11, verse one. I'm gonna read it. We're gonna take a look at it. And then we're gonna go into the rest of the prayer um, in Matthew, okay? So Luke chapter one, chapter 11, verse one goes like this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. We're gonna pause. There's two things that we don't see in the Matthew version. First of all, we don't see what Jesus was doing. In that version, in the Luke version, we see that he was praying. You see, in the book of, of Luke, which I found this interesting, it's often, excuse me, it's often called the gospel of prayer. And here's why. You've got over and over and over, Luke documents Jesus praying. In chapter three of Luke, he's, he's, he's praying when he's baptized. In chapter five, he's praying. He's going to a desolate place and withdrawing and he's praying. In chapter six, he goes to a mountain to pray before he chooses his 12. In chapter nine, he goes alone and asks the crowd. Before the crowd asks, who are you? It goes on and on and on. So many instances. You see, so the disciples would have seen him praying over and over and over, right? So the first thing we know is what Jesus was doing when he got interrupted. The second thing we know is that one of the disciples asked, what did he ask? Lord, teach us to pray. Have you ever thought, like I literally have never stopped and thought about that question. And here's why. Here's why it's weird. Okay, at this point, the disciples have witnessed things like this. He made water into wine. He healed leopard Le leopards. He didn't heal leopards, guys. I, it might've been in a different version, maybe the message, but he didn't. He healed lepers. He healed paralyzed guys. He healed the silent and the unclean and the hopeless and the forgotten. He raised dead sons and he raised friends. He fed thousands with loaves and fishes. He calmed storms. He walked on water. I could go on and on, right? The point is they have seen him doing all these amazing miracles and what do they ask him to teach them how to do? To pray. Isn't that interesting? I've never thought of it before. All the things they could ask they ask him this. To my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't ask him to teach them to do anything else but pray. Well, the only request they had was to teach them to pray. Would that be your only request to Jesus today? I don't think I can honestly say that it would. And here's why. I don't think I think about prayer as, as the rebarb, you know? And so there's something that we need to learn, even if we read no further for us to understand that prayer was significant enough and Jesus did it enough that the disciples knew something. They knew that that's what they needed to know how to do. And so they asked. Well, I love that we get that in Luke, right? That little detail that we don't get in Matthew. And so flip over with me. We're gonna look at the text in Matthew because that's where you guys were this week. Um, Matthew uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter six, verses five through eight. We're first gonna look at this. There's, there's really two parts. We're gonna look at how Jesus says, when you pray, we're gonna go through that. And then we're gonna actually look at the prayer itself, what you should pray, okay? So verses five through eight, that's where we're gonna look at when you pray. I want you to note something when we go through this. We're gonna break it into three sections. Here's why. There's three wins that occurred. Did you see that? There's three times that you see the Lord say, and when you pray, verse five, verse six, but when you pray, verse seven, and when you pray, three wins, okay? The number one, the first win is this. What is my motive in prayer? 
What is my motive in prayer? That's what Jesus wants us to examine in this first section. In verses five through six, if you've got your Bible, follow with me to this number, this first win. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What is he saying here? What is he saying about the motive? This is one of three different times Jesus calls out hypocrites. You covered the other two, I think, in homework um, last week. He talks about, in verses two, three, four, he talks about hypocrites when they're giving. In this section, he talks about um, the hypocrites when they're praying. And then in verses 16 through 18, he talks about hypocrites when they're fasting. Three times Jesus mentions it. Well, Warren Wearsby, he's a Bible scholar that I like to read often. He said this, I thought this was interesting. A hypocrite is not a person who falls short of his high ideas or who occasionally sins because we all experience those failures. A hypocrite deliberately uses religion to cover up his sins to promote his own gains. A hypocrite deliberately deliberately uses religion to cover up his own sins, to promote his own gains. And so when Jesus is calling somebody a hypocrite about praying, he ain't playing, right? I mean, he's, he's getting really dirty and down in it in this very moment. The Greek for this word actually means an actor who wears a mask. I saw another interpretation that calls it a pretender. A hypocrite is a pretender, as he was speaking at the time, this is something you need to know. Remember who the audience is, right? The audience is the disciples, the committed, but also we know that there are others listening in. So there's others that are, that are just, just kind of interested, kind of concerned, right? And so they're listening in as well. So this is what's funny. At this time, prayer was a huge deal. It was like a pillar of Jewish piety, okay? So at this moment in time, public prayer would happen in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening, Okay. People would stop what they were doing, drop and pray, some discreetly and some more pretentiously. And so Jesus in this moment is, is kind of subtweeting. You know, he's kind of like calling those people out that are like stopping in the middle of the streets and, and, and praying because they're doing it to be seen, not necessarily to be heard by God. His words here might mean something to us as well. I don't know. I think about this, um, when, he, when he uses this term, that the, when he's talking about these men that would pray like this, he says that they would have received um, their reward, meaning they're gonna get applause from men. Have you ever heard those people that are just excellent speakers, right? They're just eloquent and amazing and you're like, literally are like slow clap. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. That's what he's talking about. He's saying when your heart is not real, when you are a hypocrite, a pretender, that's all the praise you're gonna get kind of creepy, right? Like God knows our hearts. And so I think often, I, I, and I write this on my hand a lot, I always think it's important for us to remember that we are to be praying to an audience of one. Audience of one. And even if we're praying out loud amongst other people, which we know Jesus does that as well, we'll get to that in a minute, always to remember one. Well, we go on in verse six, and the second when is this. Where do you pray? The first win, what is your motive? The second win is where do you pray? Verse six, 
we see that he says this, Jesus says this. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Sounds like mysterious, doesn't it? I don't know, that word secret kind of, it always sat weird with me, but I, I, when I started delving into this a little bit more, I, I think the phrase that stood out to me was shut the door. Shut the door. what do you think about that? How do you pray? You know, did you relate to this or did you see that and go, yeah, I don't know, I don't think so. I mean, I do a quick one, you know, as I'm right before I'm about to eat, right before I'm about to go to bed, fall asleep, whatever. I loved this because we hear Jesus basically saying, you need to find a place where you don't see things, you don't hear things and you don't focus on things because I am the one. I talked to my friend, Lauren Etter, Many of you know our Lauren. She has, and she would, she, in fact, when I was asking her about it, she was like, why are you asking me this? Because she is like the most humble person on the planet. I haven't known her for this long, but she told me, I know she has a prayer closet where she goes and prays. And I asked her, I go, after that movie, you know, some movie about prayer closet or whatever. And she said, well, the funny thing is I've done this for about 13 years. She said, even the house before this, she goes, I found, which I found this really interesting, her words, was I needed to have a hiding place to pray because I had a lot of small people that were running around trying to find me. And she said, but then soon my hiding place became my hiding place. And I thought that was so beautiful. Like she said, you know, what started out is is a way to get away from all the distractions, the small ones that were running around like crazy, especially And to get with the Lord, it became like this this sanctuary to her. She said, the funny thing is when they moved to the next house, that was one of her main things. It's like, I need to see the closet. I need to see what that looks like. And even today, like her closet is where she goes and prays. And I asked her, I go, why? You know, why the closet? And she said, well, because I love having a place where I feel like um, I've gone to battle. And she said, every time I walk in there, I feel it. You know, I feel, I know God's with me everywhere. I know I can pray in the car. I know I can pray at church, everything. She goes, but there's something about walking in this room and feeling that battle had been done. She goes, you know, I can go in there and shut the door. I can lay down on my face. I can cry. I can do anything because no one sees but him. It's pretty beautiful, right? I thought about my prayer time and I thought, um, I'm not great about removing distractions, are you? I'm not great about um, making it quiet, you know? I'm not great about um, choosing not to focus on the things that are going on around me. I'm really not good at silence. Can you imagine? I think in this moment, we need to remember this. This is not a condemnation on public prayer. He's not saying only go pray in your, in your Lauren Edder prayer, prayer closet, right? He's not saying that. But rather, maybe what he's saying is, will I recognize your voice? You know, because I think about those people, like he gives us this example and we can see it, right? Visually, we can see the loud mouth on the street corner yelling at people with his Bible and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we think, okay, but if we're that guy, that loud mouth guy praying and all the things, is he gonna recognize our voice or is he gonna say, you know, Chris, I never heard from you in private. Only when you're standing out here making a show of it. What does that mean? I want him to know my voice. Does he recognize our voice? Let me ask you this. Do I recognize his voice? 
What do I mean by that? Do I remove the noise? Do I listen closely? You know, sometimes I think removing the noise doesn't mean necessarily silence. For me, I've learned one of the greatest ways for me to pray is to put earphones on, noise canceling earphones on, because I got dogs and I got a husband that works from home and I've got all kinds of stuff going on. But if I can put on earphones, even if it's music and just playing really low, there's something about it that feels silent to me. What does your silence look like? I think about um, in high school, you know, my husband, we dated for a thousand years. I don't even know. Somebody said the other day, how long y'all been married? I'm like, no clue, (laughs) just real long time. But anyway, we started dating when we were in high school and that was back before cell phones, obviously, because I'm 30. And so we were dating and we would write, thank you, I wanted more laughs than that, but that was all right. And we were dating and, and what we would do is we write notes. Um, hope my mom's not listening. We were writing notes. I was a really great student, bad student. But we would write notes to each other. And here's what's funny is my husband kept all the notes I wrote him and I kept all the notes he wrote me. And I wrote a lot more notes than he did, as you can imagine, because again, I was a great student. But um, <laughs> I had a lot of words, but... But here's what's cool. When we look back at that, at that pile of notes that we have, you know what notes I love? The ones he wrote to me. Because I would spend all this time writing all these notes and saying all these words to him. And the minute he would slip me the note in the hallway, it was like the most precious thing ever, right? Because they weren't, um, they were few and far between, <laughs> but also I got to be quiet and just listen to the letter. And and that's what it reminded me of here is like, how often do I value his words so much higher than my words that I just listen for his letter? I'm, I'm bad at that, you know? And so when I thought about what he was telling us to shut the door and go into this secret place, that's what I feel him saying to me. Chris, I wanna recognize your voice because I know you in private, but I also want you to hear my voice too. Uh, I think about my daughter when she was little, um, I always told the story, it was just so funny because whenever we would we were little, like she was, you know, I don't know, toddler-y kind of age, you know, it'd be like, okay, I'm gonna play, I'm gonna play dolls, okay? And I'm looking around, you know, and there's all these things to do. And so I would be down on the floor playing, but I'd be kind of like looking and seeing, okay, what's the dog doing? What's that? And she would grab my face and she'd go, mommy, I'm talking, listen with your face. And I was always like, what a bratty thing to say. But also so true, Right? I don't listen with my face very well. You know, half the time I'm multitasking a million things. Is my prayer life the same way? I would say yes. And that breaks my heart, you know. Well, the third win we see is in verses seven and eight. And Jesus says this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse eight, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. I love that. Um, A couple of things to know about the history of that. He's not like calling Gentiles evil. What he's making reference to here is that pagans at this time would repeat the names of their gods over and over without thinking. It was just a thing that they did, okay? So he's calling it out, a, a behavior, if you will, that was happening, okay? Repetition is not what makes it in vain. I mean, even Jesus was repetitive in his prayers, When he prayed at Gethsemane in Mark 14, verse 39, it says, and again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. I don't think we should ever fool ourselves into believing that God doesn't want to hear our same cries over and over. Because you know what? We're even gonna get down to this part in a minute where sometimes there's, we don't have words, right? Sometimes our words are, as Anne Lamott said, she's one of my favorite authors. She said this one time, the three essential prayers are help, thanks, and wow. 
sometimes all I have is the words to say, help, help. And he loves it. You know, I lo- I, he loves that prayer. Sometimes I think fewer words are better. Well, Jesus moves from telling us when to pray and he explains what we pray. And that's verses nine through 13. And I'm not gonna go into too terribly much detail because you're gonna hit it in your discussion. And that's where he's actually giving us the pattern of prayer. And if you remember, um, I explained in your homework that that really there's like an invocation and then there's like six petitions. Do you remember that? So like there's part of it that's like, um, these are the, the, the petitions for the father's purpose. They come first. The first three things are about the purpose for the father. And the next three things are about the family's needs. That's us, the family's needs. So let's take a look at the actual prayer that Jesus prayed. And then verse nine starts like this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I love that he starts with pray like this. Seems clear, right? I mean, Luke says it a little bit differently. Luke says, when you pray, say our Father in heaven. And so we can look at that two different ways. Yes, I think 100% we're supposed to um, recite this prayer in unison together in community. I think that is worship. I, I believe that is true. But I also think it's good for us to remember that he's saying, pray like this. And then your homework, I think you went through that. You kind of made up your own prayer, if you will, with this same pattern. And you can see what God can do with that, right? The pattern for prayer, I mentioned it's an invocation, which is our father in heaven. Those four words, most translations don't change the four words. Our is not singular. Yeah, you're welcome. That's your grammar lesson for the day. It's plural. Did you know that there are no pronouns in the entire prayer that are singular? What does that even mean? I've never noticed that, but you know what it says to me? It says that I'm not alone. It says that we are family, that we are community, that we're together. Our father, Abba, is the Aramic word. That would have been the language spoken by Jesus. He would have said Abba. And that means authority, warmth, intimacy of a loving father. It's a hard word when people refer to God as father because a lot of us didn't have an amazing father, right? But we maybe knew one. If you didn't have one, did you know one? The beauty of this is that our, we're not alone, father, this intimate, warm relationship that all of us long for, whether we got it on earth or not, right? Right? And then this, the last part of it is in heaven, it's a reminder of his sovereignty. So just in four words, like the power. Well, the invocation, our father in heaven. We move on in verse 10 and we start reading the three petitions of the father's purpose. In other words, God's concerns come first. And already I've got a big strike on my prayer record, right? My prayers start out with me, 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 me. And then maybe I might throw in a little God here and there. Jesus wants us to flip that. In verse 10, it starts this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's telling him in this moment, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, the three petitions are this. First is that God's name would be hallowed. And, and that word, you know, it's, it, we've heard it a million times. We repeat it over and over. We know the Lord's prayer. Even if you've never studied the Bible, you probably know it. What does that word mean? It means the highest honor. It means set apart. 
Start your prayer with honoring God. Um, Years ago, and a lot of us in women's ministry here at this church have adopted this when we spend time together in prayer. Ruth Brock, she's one of our um, founding members of our church. And and she said one time, her prayer life, y'all, if you can ever get around Ruth Brock, let me just aside, pause. If you can ever just hang out with Ruth Brock, if you're walking around the lobby and you see her with a name tag on, just get near her, okay? (laughs) Just be near her because she is amazing and her prayer life is inspiring. But she told us one time, and I'll never forget it. She said, I start every bit of my prayer time with this sentence. You are the God who blank. Every prayer. And so for women's ministry, a lot of us, we will sit for the first five, 10, 15 minutes and we will just say, you are the God who heals, who loves, who sees, who protects, who hems us in, who knows, who lifts our head, all of the things that God is. There is nothing that will set your heart right in prayer better than telling God who he is, amen? You just tell him right back who he is. Hallowed be thy name. You tell him who he is. The second petition is this, kingdom come. You, you know that word, like we hear that a lot. It's kind of a churchy word, the kingdom thing. I want you to think about this. This helped me. Um, that it refers to the reign of Christ, okay? But here's what's important. It refers to the reign of Christ in your heart, in your life, in the church as a whole. There's no singular pronouns, remember? It's all of us. If we know him, which remember, he's speaking to disciples here. It's the disciples' prayer If you know him, then he is at work in you. When it says kingdom come, he means you are to reflect Jesus's love, obey, honor him, do good, tell the world about him, and on and on and on. The kingdom is now. Jesus came to earth and brought the kingdom with him. Amen? And so in this prayer, we're to remember that not only are we to honor God's name, but we're to recognize that his kingdom has come and I am part of it. The third um, petition that we see for the Father's purposes is this. Your will be done. Your will be done. You know how often that is my whole prayer? (laughs) Those who pray backstage with me know. Usually it sounds something like this. God, your word's not mine. God, your motive, not mine. God, your plan, not mine. Your vision, not mine. Your will, not mine. God's will on earth, not Chris's will in heaven, amen? I don't need to go try to change what God's doing. He's gonna do what he's gonna do. He's God, I'm not, I'm terrible at it, amen? Yeah, Jessica's nodding in the back, for sure. Something to remember too, when he's talking about the will, he's talking about the revealed will of God. The fullness of God's will is still to come, something we're looking forward to, okay? The next section, there's the three petitions about the family's needs, okay? You covered them in your homework. I'm gonna move quickly. Verses 11 through 13 go like this. You know, you know the words, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's look at those three things. First is the provision. There's the provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Anybody recognize the idea of daily bread? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament when God provided for his people in the desert with daily manna that rained from heaven, just enough for the day, just enough for the day. He wants us to remember that, that he's still the same God, same God that was theirs is yours, same. 
I love the story. I think I referred to it actually in your homework, but I wanna read this to you. 2 Kings 19, one through eight, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. And this summer, plug, if you wanna join us for that study, we're gonna study 2 Kings, okay? So we'll probably get to hit this story, but it was the story about Elijah, remember? And we talked about the broom tree in your homework but I wanna read this to you. I want you to hear it from a different place, okay? I want you to think about God who cares about your physical needs. Verse 19 goes like this. I mean, chapter 19, verses one through eight go like this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And listen to this. And then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, I love this, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. He gave him food, he gave him drink, he gave him a nap. Do you love God? I mean, he knew in that moment, like he didn't even wanna live. And he's like, oh baby, you're hungry and you're tired, you're thirsty. He cares about our, our daily needs. Like I, I get so mad at myself when I, when I pray for daily needs because sometimes I'll be like, oh God, you don't, you don't care about that. And then I read this and I'm like, he cares about naps, y'all. He cares about everything. Don't ever underestimate what God wants to do for you. And it may not always look the way you think it's gonna look. You think Elijah thought it was gonna look this way when he started doing his whole thing for God? I don't think he did. I don't think he thought he'd end up in the middle of a desert under a tree wanting to die. But even in that moment, God provided for him. I love that, the provision. So we start with understanding that we need to tell God, I can ask for provision. And the second thing I can understand is I can also ask for pardons. I don't wanna camp there. I wanna leave it at the throne, right? And then, and then leave and trust that he's got it. If you jump down and you read verses 14, um, yeah, verses 14 and then even 15, you see that it says, it's kind of like a, um, an appendix, if you will, to the prayer. It says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Don't wig out right here because here's what you need to remember is this is not in conflict with the gospel of grace, Okay. There's nothing that's going to earn your forgiveness. Nothing's gonna earn your salvation, I should say. In this moment, he's not talking about salvation. What he's talking about is forgiveness. What he's talking about is choices that you make in life. Um, think about this, it's about releasing grudges. It's like, um, 
if I choose to live in a place where I am completely unforgiving and completely, I got no grace, I got no mercy, I got nothing, but I call myself a Jesus follower, how in the world am I gonna repair that relationship with God? How in the world am I gonna pray to him? Oh, forgive me for all the things when he's like, yeah, Chris, but, but you don't forgive anybody else. Maybe you need to look in the mirror. You know, that's how I see this in this moment. Um, Mary DeMuth, she wrote a really cool um, book. It's a devotional and I have it up here if you wanna come look at it. Um, and it's where she prays scripture every day. And I love this because in this one particular day, which just so happened that, that I read it last week, just so happened, she says this, instead of rehearsing that person's um, egregious sin, may I remember my own and the price that you paid to set me free. What, what, a, what a switch flip, right? In this particular prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I mean, excuse me, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. What if in that moment, instead of thinking of all the people that have done you wrong, you think about how you did God wrong? What about that? That was powerful to me when I read that. I'm like, wow, there's no better way to understand how much I need to forgive others than to understand how much he forgave of me, amen? Well, pardon. A forgiven person forgives. And the last petition that we see in this prayer, this model, this template is protection. Protection. He talks about temptation. He talks about, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Anybody ever get real weirded out about that? Like, hey God, you're God. Why are you tempting me? What's up with with that? Well, let me clarify a couple things for you. That's not exactly what that means. It's not, it doesn't mean that God tempts you. In fact, James 1.13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, okay? God's word doesn't conflict with itself. What we need to understand is in in this moment, this word temptation, it really can mean, um, Temptation that comes with trials and hardships. Does that make sense? Does God allow trials and hardships? Yes. Does he allow temptation? Yes. But did he lead us into temptation? No. And in this moment, we're, being, we're, we're asking him, deliver us from those places where we could potentially go down the wrong path. Rather, he doesn't tempt us, but he allows testing and trials and hardships. I love that God's word confirms that truth. Listen, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this word about prayer. I don't know if it felt so personal to you because you know what, to be quite honest, when I sat down to do the writing of this thing, when I first started it, I was like, how can I do a fresh spin on the Lord's prayer? I mean, we all know it, right? I was like, ah, one day, one day of homework. It'll, I mean, that's where my head was. And then God opened up this whole new thing. You know, I think we spent three days on it or something, but I just thought, gosh, I don't ever want to go back to that kind of prayer life. Is prayer the scaffolding that forms and builds your faith? I want it to be for me. I don't want it to be broken pieces that, that, that are, are weakened and, and, and micro movements of my lack of faith and the infection that I'm allowing in my life to break this communion that I have with God, you know, the lifeline. I want it to be firm and strong and unbreakable, you know? And so I want to copy Jesus' example. 
as I was uh, working on this, just actually this morning, as I was finishing up some parts of this, a song came on. Y'all know how I am about music. It's, you can just take a nap if you don't want to hear this. But the song came on, and, and it was actually written about like Psalm 46, 4 or something, um, about be still and know that I am God. It was written about that. But um, it's a song that was written by this artist that I really like. Her name's Amanda Lindsay Cook. And she wrote this song called House on a Hill. I don't know if you've heard it. If you haven't, you need to go find it. And she said, I watched a, a, a YouTube about how, because I was always so curious. I'm like, this song, every time I hear it, it just stops me. And she said, she wrote this song after taking a year off of any music. And she said, she rented a house from a friend of hers in Nashville. And this was this house on the hill. And she said, my whole goal was to get silent and get quiet and get in those secret places and shut the door with God. She said, you see, because I was run down and I was tired and I was broken, I was weak and I didn't feel him anymore. And so she said, this song came. And so as I heard this come on my earphones this morning, and then I hit replay, replay, replay over and over, I felt like it was perfect words for us. She writes it from the perspective as though God is speaking to you. And so I want you to hear that today. Hear God speaking to you about what he wants to do in your life, what he wants to communicate to you in that communion, in that, in that connection, in that relationship. Because I think we all are lacking it if we're being truthful with ourselves. So listen to these words, and then I'm gonna pray and close, okay? It's quiet in this house upon the hill. You won't mind it. Some things you can't know until you're still. In the silence, let your spinning thoughts slow down. And in the stillness, things have a way of working out. Allow me to introduce myself again. I'm the one that knew you before time began. I've been waiting for you to let me be your friend. Everything you ever needed is everything I am. I am. Take your chances. There's nothing here to lose. Ask your questions. I promise you the truth. As you're ready, I want to hear your heart. Is it heavy? Where wounds have left a mark? Allow me to introduce myself again. I was with you every place you've ever been. I'm the one that held you when you couldn't even stand. If you're wondering who can heal your brokenness, I can. I'll meet you in the house up on the hill. How I want to show you that I am real. Allow me to introduce myself again. I'm the love you used to think could not exist. I'm as sure as where you're standing and as free as the wind. You don't have to reach for me because this is where I am. I am. Will you pray with me? Father, um, we invite you into our prayer life. It sounds weird to say. We want you to build something in us. We want to sustain and support our relationship with you through our conversation with you. We know that you've always been there, but sometimes we don't act like we believe it. God, we know that you knew us before time began, but sometimes we just have too much pride to admit it. God, we know that you desperately want to give us truth. You want to hear our heart. You want to know where we're broken. You want to heal. And so God, I, I just, I ask you to just remove the 
the pride and the shame and, and the places where we, we get bitter and the places where we get mad because we wanna be God and you're not good at it and we have all the plan and yours isn't good enough. God, forgive us for all of it. We wanna get all of it out and we just wanna connect with you, Lord. We wanna shut the door and get in the secret places and we want you to know our voices. So God, thank you so much that you give us a chance to speak and you give us a chance to hear I thank you so much for this pattern, these words from our Savior right to us, like, like a love song, you know? And so God, I pray that we don't take these words lightly, but rather we, we let them infiltrate into every bit of our lives, Father. Thank you. Thank you for loving us even when we're in the desert and broken. Thank you for loving us when we shut ourselves in a room and pray. Thank you for loving us when we don't. And we thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen.